The scripture reading this morning can be found in the pew Bible in front of you on page 833. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 75. The words will also be on the screen uh, behind me. Uh, Please, if you're able, stand for the reading of God's word. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward who said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is God's word. He is the Lord of the universe. He is the great I am. He is the creator and sustainer of everything. And nothing that has been made has been created apart from him. He is the lagos, the meaning of life. He helps us to understand life. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And he stepped out of heaven putting aside his glory for you and for me and for each person in our world. We should bow down and worship him. We should Join the angels in their worship in the heavenlies, crying out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and glory and riches and honor and strength. But we put him on trial. Our Father, only your Spirit can bring us through to help us understand what Christ went through. Yesterday, 
what he goes through today. To understand the response of love on the level in which he poured out his love for us. So Lord, I pray that the mere words that come from this pulpit will be used by your spirit, speaks the word of God to each of us where we are this morning. Lift us up and give us a heavenly vantage point. In Christ we pray. Amen. In the past, their plan had been often thwarted, had been circumvented. But now, it's coming together just as they wanted. Caiaphas had declared that this Jesus had to die. He was gaining too much momentum. Too many people were following him. And the response of Rome could be very harsh. It was critical that one man die rather than an entire nation die. And so early in chapter 26, we see Caiaphas putting everything into motion as he plots with the chief priests and the elders a way in which to get Jesus to arrest him and to do it in secret so all could be done then put him to death. It came into play. They found the disciple who would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. They found where he was, where he'd be alone with his disciples. No crowds around. So they entered Gethsemane. Jesus didn't put up any resistance, and yet one of his disciples did. But Jesus even quelled that potential rebellion. And then all of the disciples deserted him. There was no need to be afraid of the crowds if those closest to him had left him. And say they brought him to Caiaphas' house in this passage. They put him on trial. God's plan was working perfectly. God so loved the world that he sent his only son for us. And Jesus stepped part of heaven, taking off his regal robes of glory and putting on humanity, born as a babe. He lived a life perfectly unblemished. living the shadow of the cross each moment of his life. We hear it in his predictions. We see it shortly after he sought his life. But this was God's plan. And now Jesus had gone into Gethsemane with his final wrestling with the will of God. Understanding the full realization of what it would cost him to save us. The physical agony, but much more the spiritual agony of being separated from his father. And he said, your will be done. So he got up, was arrested, and now was standing trial. Knowing he would be condemned and put to death 
man's plan, God's plan coming together. We see in this passage a jury is gathered. It's the Sanhedrin. It's a group of 70 leaders, the religious elite, the cultural elite come together, led by the chief priest. It says in this passage, the chief priest and the whole council came together. The chief priest and the whole council. Uh, excuse me, verse 57. Then when they had seized Jesus, they led him to Caiaphas, the high priest. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony that they might put Jesus to death. Notice the makeup of the jury. It's the scribes, the elders, the chief priests, and the high priest. And Jesus had predicted in Matthew 16 that it would be and the scribes and the chief priests who would cause his suffering. And just as he predicted, here they are. The jury that Israel trusted decisions with. They were like our Supreme Court, state and federal Supreme Court. These were the men who were to bring justice. And yet we see in the trial there was anything but justice. Scholars point to 14 injustices that, uh, that go against trials over which the Sanhedrin was to preside. Now, these show up in the Mishnah, and granted, the Mishnah is written in the year 200, but its sources go back to the time of Jesus. So many of these rules were broken. Among them, all criminal cases must be tried during the daytime and must be completed during the daytime. Criminal cases could not be transacted during Passover season at all. Only if the verdict was not guilty could a case be finished on the day it was begun. Otherwise, a night must elapse before the pronouncement of the verdict. No decision of the Sanhedrin was valid unless it was met, unless it met in its own meeting place, the Hall of Hewn Stones in the Temple Precincts. All evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses separately examined and having no contact with each other. False witnesses. A false witness was punishable by death. Still further, in any trial, the process began by laying before the court all the evidence of innocence of the accused before the evidence for his guilt was adduced. Sounds like some tremendous rules to ensure justice, all trampled on. For in this trial, the verdict and sentence had already been predetermined. 
we are going to put him to death. Now we have to put together a trial that will appear to be just, appear to be fair, but we know the conclusion we need to have. And so they bring in false witnesses, one after another after another, but it doesn't seem to to stay and lead to a guilty verdict. They probably don't have their together. They're, they're not consistent enough. So they finally find two witnesses who come together. Vaguely remember a comment that Jesus made that appears in John chapter 2. It says this, At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to these? In John 2, Jesus had made the statement. When he was challenged for what authority he had in cleansing the temple, he said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now he's speaking about the temple of his body. And in these words is a reference to just as the temple was the house of God, so his body was the house of God. He is making a divine claim in these verses. But it's completely misunderstood. And they end up testifying that Jesus said, I'm going to destroy the temple, and then I'll raise it up. Caiaphas wants a response from Jesus. What's Jesus' defense to these words? His defense is that he is completely silent. Jesus remains silent. The high priest has to keep pushing and pushing. You know, how different that is from, I know, the way I would stand before such injustice. Perhaps you as well. I would be answering every false charge one by one, uncovering how they're wrong. I'd be pointing out how unjust they were, how many rules of the court they had broken. And even though I'd probably know I'm doomed, I want to highlight to everyone how unfair and how unreasonable and how wrong this trial was. Jesus he remains silent, precisely as Isaiah had predicted. And one of the ironies in this is those who are convicting Jesus of a claim to be Messiah when he is not is a, are actually fulfilling the prophecies that show that Jesus is the Messiah. For Isaiah said, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. What gave him the strength to do this? In John chapter 13, at the very beginning of the night in which Jesus is betrayed, it's Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, 
he got up. You see, Jesus could stand before all injustice, secure, peaceful, because he knew two things. He knew who he was. He was secure knowing that he'd come from the Father. He knew his mission. But he also knew his future, his ultimate future. He knew where he was going. We need to stand before injustice and not respond with hate or defensiveness. We need the same two qualities in our lives. We need to know who we are. We don't need to prove ourselves to anybody because we know we're the sons and daughters of God. We also need to have an eternal perspective. No matter what man does to us, God brings us to himself. I believe it's these truths that are in men and women around this world who are persecuted, arrested, and executed for the cause of Christ today. But they stand firm. They know who they are. They know their eternity. Jesus was silent and Caiaphas was trying to do everything he could to get Jesus to say something get greater evidence from Jesus himself and he finally gets the mark. He says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He calls Jesus to an oath by the most sacred name of all the name of the living God, and Jesus had to respond. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the living God? And you can see in those words what Caiaphas is searching for. The Christ is the King, the King of kings. The Son of God is a divine title. Trying to get Jesus to admit that he is the king of kings, that he is God. And if he's able to do that, he can convict Jesus. And he can use that evidence to bring to Pilate. Because he can say, Jesus is claiming to be a king. He's a threat to the Rome rule. Jesus now responds, you have said so. But I tell you, I'm going to give you a clear understanding of these truths that I am the Christ, the Son of God. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus uses a title that David, excuse me, Daniel uses to reference the Messiah, the Son of Man, the one who comes to reign and to rule forever, the one who is the ultimate judge of the universe, the one who shares 
were with God Almighty. Jesus is claiming to be Messiah and to be God and to be judge. And here is where we have the greatest irony. The one who is being judged by man judges all. Caiaphas has what he wanted now. He responds. He tears his robes and he cries out, Blasphemy! What further witnesses do we need? And then he turns to the, the Sanhedrin. You've now heard the blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they all respond, he deserves death. Blasphemy. Jesus has equated himself with God. And if that is not true, that is blasphemy. If it is true, it's true. Jesus has said the words, but Caiaphas' response is not, what proof do you have for this? Because he's not looking for proof. He's not looking for evidence. He's not truly trying to understand who Jesus is. He just wants to condemn Jesus. No more evidence. Jesus had plenty of proof that he is who he said he is. He fulfilled prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that had pointed to the coming Messiah. John the Baptist, the esteemed John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for the Messiah, pointed to Jesus. Thousands around him gathered and cried out that he was the Christ. Shouldn't it at least be looked into? And he did miracle after miracle after miracle. And, you know, his miracles were never challenged. They were never said, you are not doing They all knew he was doing miracles because they said, the issue is, what power are you doing the miracles by? This, you have to be doing these miracles by supernatural power. You're doing them from the power of the devil, not from God. All the evidence was there. He spoke with a wisdom that no one had ever spoken with. An authority that thundered across the land. But no, we're not going to ask to see if you have any proofs that you are the Messiah. Very fair, unjust trial which condemned Jesus. But it wasn't enough to condemn him to death. They then took him and spit in his face, beat him, blindfolded him, pushed him around, beating him, and then mocked him with the words, prophesy who hit you. It wasn't enough to condemn Jesus. They had to demean him to the fullest possible to extent to diminish him so that he seemed to be nothing, dirt under their feet. They were accomplishing their purpose. 
Are there any echoes of this trial in our society today? Now, I don't want to broad brush everyone who denies Christ. There are many who don't believe in Christ, who did not have a bitterness or a vitriol against Christ. They're not trying to turn people from Christ. They just go along and get along and say, that's fine for you, but you know, just doesn't work for me. There's many. But there is a growing contingent of atheists who are attacking Christianity, putting Christ on trial. Now, I don't think Jesus is that worried being put on trial. In fact, I would say he would want everyone to examine the evidence. One of the first books I read as a, as a new Christian was Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And, and it's out there. And that's what Jesus would say. Well, take a look. Look at the evidence. This evidence dem demands a verdict. So, do that. But what I'm seeing today is something different. I'm seeing individuals who have a predetermined verdict about Jesus, and then they look for the false witnesses to support their view. Uh, just Friday, I was reading a, a Yahoo article um, and it was written about a scientist who is saying that we can get rid of religion in one generation. And all we have to do is, in our schools, from kindergarten up through college, teach them science and how science refutes the Bible, and then show that Christianity and religion are fanciful and ridicule them ridicule Christians. And then within one generation, Christianity, religion will be gone. I don't know how, how many people are on board with that movement, but do you see an attitude that is being uncovered here? I have a predetermined verdict that Christianity is fanciful, that Jesus is not historical, Jesus is not historical in any way, and so now I will look for evidence, and I will search and hunt for anything that I can ridicule Christians with, anything that seems like in science that it seems to go against Christianity, and voila, now we get to turn everybody. If you read some of the responses to things Christians say, you can see a hatred welling up against so much that is Christian. That is happening. And so I have a challenge to the skeptics today. And that challenge is try to be objective. Search yourself to see if you have a predetermined verdict. And really look for the evidence that supports it. Look to see if you are, what is it possibly in you that moves you in that direction. Um, 
Atheist philosopher Aldous Huxley said in his book, Ends and Means, no philosophy is completely disinterested. The pure love of truth is always mingled to some extent with a need, consciously or unconsciously felt by even the noblest and most intelligent philosophers, to justify a given form of personal or social behavior, to rationalize the traditional prejudices of a class, given class or community. In his book, The Last Word, NYU professor and atheist Thomas Nagel admitted, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that so some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I don't want there to be a God. While I try to be objective, I have all sorts of personal reasons for why I don't want there to be a God. I want to be able to make my own decisions. I don't want to submit. Now, you could see that these men are practically admitting, I have a personal reason, and it's I don't want to submit to God. I want to live life my own way. So I've really come up with a predetermined conclusion, and then I'll just go look for the evidence to support that and use only that. If you're a skeptic, is that the ultimate reason? If you know there is a God, you know you're accountable to him. Let me give a challenge to those who want to stay neutral, who would say, it's good for you. Uh, I'm where I am. Jesus doesn't allow that option. He said it right here. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And he said, yes. In fact, I am the Son of Man, and you will see me coming in the clouds, and I am going to judge you all. He was convicted because of that statement. He went to the cross because of those words. If he claims to be God, as so many have said, whether it be Rabbi Duncan or C.S. Lewis or Josh McDowell or countless others today, God, true or it's not true? If it's not true, then why isn't it true? Is, is he deluded? And, and if somebody thinks they're God and they're not, we put in an asylum. But if he's lying, and he's trying to present himself as God when he is not. Most deceptive individuals who ever lived. But if he is who he said he is, then he is God. We all have to face what Jesus has said about himself. There is no escape to say that Jesus is not historical. Um, just reading a piece again where uh, 
Bart Ehrman is a former Christian who uh, basically has turned and writes much material that is trying to disprove Christianity. And he wrote a book uh, about to the atheists too, and he essentially said um, at the core of atheism is they don't believe in the historicity of Christ. It was an incredible response from the atheist. The, and one of the women said, uh, one professor said, I do not know one atheist who does not believe in the historicity of Jesus Christ. Bart Ehrman is delusional and misrepresents us. Jesus is real. He is historical. And he said these words. You have a choice. I challenge you to explore the evidence. Albert Ross was a lawyer who really didn't believe in Christian stuff. And so he decided to go to the Holy Land and to, to explore and show how this wasn't real and he was going write, to write a book. But in the process of his he became a Christian believing in the resurrection and wrote the book Who Moved the Stone under the pseudonym of Frank Morrison. Sir William Ramsey lived in a period where the book of Acts Luke was ridiculed as a historian who didn't know anything. Paul's letters were seen as inauthentic, so this Scottish archaeologist and New Testament scholar did his exploration, had verdict in mind, I'm going to show how false Luke is. The problem is he kept uncovering how right Luke was, and he became a Christian and wrote the book, St. Paul the Traveler. Lou Wallace's faith was tremendously shaken by in a conversation with an agnostic. He realized he had no foundation for his faith. He really had no proof. So he went out and exploring and saying, I, I need to look at the evidence. I need to know what the evidence is. Is this stuff about Christ real? And the conclusion is found in his novel, Ben-Hur, in which Jesus dies and rises from the dead. Their story after story of people who were shaken or outright skeptics who examined the evidence believers in Jesus Christ. Believers in Christ the question, the challenge is if you were put on trial for Christ would you stand like Christ? Are you that confirmed in your identity in Christ? Are you that focused with an eternal perspective? I bet almost every one of us would say, I would never deny Christ. I would die for Christ. Precisely the words of Peter as we see in the second trial in this passage. 
This trial doesn't take place in Caiaphas's house. It takes place in the courtyard. The jury, uh, the, the, the witnesses, those observing, are not the Sanhedrin, the most powerful men, influential men, who hold li- your, your life and death in their hand, if they can convince Pilate to follow it. <laughs> it's a couple servant girls and some bystanders. And their witnesses are not false witnesses. Everything they said was true. And so how did this unfold? It says, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. The servant girl came up to him and said, you were also with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And he went out to the entrance, and another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. In a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself, and it's, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, and he went out and wept bitterly. Peter was among the three closest to Jesus. He went to the Mount of Transfiguration and saw Jesus in all of his glory. He witnessed miracle after miracle after miracle. He was able to walk on water because Jesus walked on and empowered him. Matthew drives home how important, how central Peter was. He mentions him six extra times in six extra stories than the other Gospels. And one of them, Jesus says, you, Simon, are now named Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Matthew raises Peter to the heights of height among Gospels. So we understand who can fall. It's driven home. The horror of this denial is driven home in scene after scene. This leader who has witnessed everything of Jesus, Jesus tells him, you're going to deny me. But he doesn't watch and be careful about it. He simply responds, that's not me. I would never deny Jesus. And Jesus says, three times you will deny me before the cock crows. Not me. I will die with you. In the garden, Jesus warns him, watch and pray. Don't fall into temptation. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. And Peter, I will fall asleep. Peter has the bold to try to stand up for Jesus. He has the boldness to follow Jesus, to to see where this trial leads. But when the moment comes, we would all think he was prepared. And we can prepare ourselves, but we're not prepared at that moment. We will fall. He denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. 
And each time he digs a pit deeper and deeper and deeper in his denials. Look at how this, this, this scene unfolds. It's a servant girl who comes to him. And she just makes an observation. You were with Jesus, the Galilean. And Peter denies it, though probably convincing himself, if not an out-and-out -out denial. I don't, I don't know what you mean. And yet we know his fear is he, he distances himself from her and, and moves out to the entryway. And there another servant girl speaks, and not to him, she speaks to the other bystanders, and he says, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, she didn't accuse Peter there. He's simply hearing it, but he is so worried, so nervous, that he now gives an oath and says, I don't know the man. And this is like saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. I don't know the man. And now there's no longer comments. There's a direct accusation with some evidence. Certainly you too were one of them for your accent gives you away. And then it says, Peter invoked a curse upon himself and then swore again. It's more like this. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, but the truth, so help me God. God strike me dead and put me in the deepest pit of hell if I'm not telling the truth. I don't know him. Do we get the sense of how deep the denials of Christ, how fully and completely Peter disowned Jesus with every fiber of his body? Peter was guilty. He deserved condemnation. Yet, Jesus had predicted that Peter would be restored. John details an image of Peter being restored, and history cried that Peter was restored. The difference between him and Caiaphas is he went out and wept bitterly. He saw his sin for what it was and he stopped all denials, faced that sin, and he wept. But it wasn't his tears that took away his sins. It was the blood of Christ, for Peter said in his first epistle, you were ransomed, not things such as silver or gold, but with the blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It is the work of Christ on the cross, the cross Caiaphas sent him to, where he takes our sins and Peter's sins and washes them clean. We see Caiaphas's determination to do away with Jesus. We understand there are skeptics who would do away with him in an instant if they could. You know, Jesus' response to them, it's given at the cross. Father, forgive them. 
for they know not what they do. Jesus provided for their forgiveness if they would only accept him. Peter disowned Jesus completely, but Jesus would not disown him. In the Gospel of John, we have the response of Jesus in the restoration of Peter. They're at another fire. Jesus says, do you love me? He doesn't say, Peter, do you understand how deeply you sinned against me? He didn't say, Peter, you failed. Can you promise me you will never fail me again? Peter, I know you struggled. You need more education. So we're going to send you to school where you get more education. We're going to give you an accountability partner who's going to watch over you. And then you're going to be ready. He asked the question, do you love me? He asked it again, do you love me? He asked it again, do you love me? That is the issue. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. What do you feel about Jesus' forgiveness? What do you feel about yourself? Have you gone so deep in sin that you feel you've denied Christ over and over again? You feel you can't really stand before him for you're not worthy to stand before him. And you certainly aren't and I am not. But the blood of Christ cleanses us of sin. Accept that forgiveness. Accept that embrace. And then answer Jesus' question today. Do you love me? Because if you do, Jesus is ready to send you out to serve him. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. But when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew he would fail, but he knew he'd be restored. And that Peter would step out and strengthen his weak brothers. And think of through the ages how many Weak brothers and sisters who wallow in guilt have been brought up by the story of Peter. If God could forgive him, deny, 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 disown, curse me, God, if I am lying. He can restore every single one of us and use us for his glory and for his purpose. Our Father, may we be captured by the love of Jesus.